Last October, 30 members of Congress asked the Department of Health and Human Services to issue guidance on organ transplant discrimination with regard to persons with disabilities. The petition was written after some high-profile cases in which young people with cognitive impairment were denied transplants, at least initially. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Scott Halpern, an Associate Professor of Medicine, Epidemiology, and Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Dr. Halpern has co-authored a perspective article about the debate over organ transplantation for patients with cognitive impairment. Dr. Halpern, how do transplant centers currently decide whether cognitively impaired patients should be placed on the waiting list for an organ? Is there consistency across centers? No, there is actually great inconsistency in how any conceivable category of patients is placed on waiting lists for organ transplantation across centers. Transplant centers tend to be fairly risk-averse in terms of not wishing to use organs that may be suboptimal, and also in terms of not wishing to place potential recipients on wait lists who may have suboptimal outcomes. But the degree of that risk aversion is highly variable across centers. And so this is undoubtedly true also in terms of aversiveness to placing patients with cognitive impairment on wait lists, but I don't think it reflects any particular nuance regarding cognitive impairment, but rather is reflective of more generalizable diversity of practice. You write in your article that transplant centers shouldn't consider quality of life when they're deciding which patients to place on the waiting list. How do transplant centers typically handle patients with chronic physical conditions, and is that different from cognitive impairment mental conditions? I think that's a great question, Steve. It's actually quite interesting. I think that, by and large, transplant physicians and surgeons are among the most public health-oriented physicians in all of medicine. Perhaps because they're so accustomed to dealing with scarcity, they take very seriously their obligations as stewards of public resources, such as organs. And they're heavily invested in ensuring that they allocate organs to patients who are most likely to benefit from them. Of course, this public health focus is not without its downsides, and I suppose one possible downside is that some groups of patients, perhaps including those with certain degrees of cognitive impairment, may fall through the cracks. I don't think this is because transplant clinicians discriminate against those with cognitive impairment as much as perhaps they overweight the possibility that the impairment will impact post-transplant outcomes or perhaps more relevant to your point, that they have a hard time assigning quality weightings to extra years of life that such patients might gain with transplantation. I actually don't think it's different at all than patients with physical debilities. So I could easily imagine, for example, a patient who would die without a lung transplant, but with or without a lung transplant may not be able to ever walk again, perhaps because of some neuromuscular disease. I suspect, although there are no data on this issue that I'm aware of, that such patients may be less likely to get placed on wait lists purely because clinicians have reflexive considerations of the reality that there are only so many organs to go around and strong desires to see fully functional lives restored. So you argue in your article that those judgments about the value of a patient's life should be made by the people who live with them, designated surrogates. How does that kind of process work in practice? Well, like many things 
in organ allocation. The ways in which the value of life are considered are not regulated, and I don't think they should be regulated. I think the fact that the government, by and large, has chosen to stay out of the business of practicing medicine is a good thing. Having said that, the diversity of practices that we spoke of earlier with regard to how centers make listing decisions may benefit from impartial sounding boards that consist of all sorts of stakeholders, in this case, stakeholders relevant for patients with cognitive impairment. So one could imagine boards that consist of social psychologists who can really adjudicate the social supports needed for successful post-transplant outcomes, social workers, all sorts of individuals, including family members and transplant candidates themselves, and certainly physicians, so that there is at least a body to hear disputes when they arise with regard to whether value judgments are at the core of decisions not to risk patients. So would that same kind of board look at the question of how well an adult with cognitive impairment might adhere to postoperative regimens and medications? It certainly could. I think the point of the board would not be to ever compel any center to list any given patient. In fact, I would strongly propose that a board could not compel a center to do such a thing. But I think it would be helpful if there were a mechanism for disputes between patients or family members and transplant centers regarding listing decisions to at least have the case heard by an impartial board to render an opinion. And I think it should be just an opinion. But the virtue here is that I think without such a mechanism, we're seeing dramatic proliferation of cases that are sort of being handled by the court of public opinion, but it's not a fair court of public opinion. It is those who have the most powerful connections and the greatest access to social media and the greatest abilities to leverage widespread campaigns on behalf of their loved ones, getting preferential consideration in listing or perhaps allocation decisions. We saw some of this with the Sarah Murnahan controversy that happened at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia three or four years ago now, where her family did exactly what a loving family would do. It waged a social media campaign on her behalf. But not all families have the ability to do that, and I don't think we want these very difficult decisions being made preferentially towards those with the greatest means, and it's a board along the lines of what we're talking about could at least provide an independent opinion about the propriety of a given listing decision. And do you think that with all of that, that that would be sufficient to protect physicians and transplant centers and give them an adequate response to those kinds of campaigns and the public outcry, the political outcry that accompanies them? I don't think that any system is going to provide full cover for that. I think this might be a step in the right direction. So I don't think there will be any perfect solutions that would provide full cover for transplant professionals. I think there will always be disputes. And I think that there will always be the potential for subjective judgments to hold sway. But I do think the frequency with which uncertainty about whether or not inappropriate value judgments are at play could be minimized by 
a hopefully infrequently utilized but widely available independent board that consists of transplant professionals and non-transplant professionals alike. Thank you, Dr. Halpern.